Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, we are currently in a series uh, through the book of Job. Uh, it's a 42-chapter book. We're spending four weeks there, so we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, but instead of kind of looking at Job chronologically, maybe 10 chapters a week, uh, we've been looking at different themes that come out from this book as a whole. And what we've learned, uh, you're, if you remember, Job is the, is the biblical story uh, of a man named Job who uh, experiences tremendous loss in his life. Uh, that in just a short amount of time, he loses uh, all of his wealth. Uh, he has 10 kids, which all pass away at once. And then he loses his health. He's stricken with disease. Uh, and so he experiences phenomenal suffering. And so it's been a book that Christians for a long time have turned to to try to get a handle on uh, the big questions of life, like why do we suffer or why do terrible things and terrible suffering happen to those uh, who are good and who follow God. And it's, it's presented to us with some really important kind of moments of conversation or reflection. Uh, but what we find is that Job doesn't really provide us with explicit answers. It doesn't say this is why uh, suffering happens, uh, but it does provide us with some really good points of reflection. Uh, and so in the first couple of chapters, we heard the accuser, uh, Hasatan, the Satan. Uh, we heard the accuser say to God that Job only worships you because of what he gets out of it. And when we hear the words of the accuser saying this about the life of Job, uh, it really raised for us the question of how the world actually works and the nature of God's justice. Uh, in other words, how, how does God go about his work of kind of ruling the universe? Does God's justice basically amount to good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? And that's, that's the thought of the accuser. Job is only doing this because of what he gets out of it. Uh, he only gets success and rewards, and so that's the only reason he's worshiping you, God. Well, after the moments of suffering that Job experiences, we have, some, we have three of Job's friends that come, and uh, what we recognize is that they certainly thought that uh, this was the case, that when they are met with a suffering friend, a man who we're told three times in the first two chapters is blameless and follows uh, righteousness and fears God, when, when his friends are met with a blameless man who is suffering deeply, they have a choice. Uh, do they hold on to their theological system, their worldview that says good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people? Uh, if you want to be fancy, you can call this universal reciprocity, okay? Uh, so that's just if you want to be fancy. Uh, but so the, the question is, um, do they hold on to that system of universal reciprocity or do they in fact, um, or do they, do they hold on to it and defend the system, or do they say there must be something wrong with my, my, the theological lens through which I view the world? Because here they have a good friend who is suffering and who is yet blameless. What we find out in chapters 3 through 38, which are a series of, of call and response, Job uh, and then the friends trying to defend or explain uh, the suffering, what we find out is that the, ch the friends choose to defend the system. Therefore, accuse Job bitterly of sin uh, and say, you're just getting what you deserve. Because if you're trying to uphold a system that says good people get good, good things and bad people get bad things, and you have a good person who gets a bad thing and experiences suffering, 
and you want to try to defend the system, the only, op- the only, uh, the only option open to you at that point is you've got to go sniffing around for sin. You've got to start blaming someone. You've got to start saying, this is someone's fault, right? And the friends blame Job bitterly. Um, and, and we talked about that last week, and I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I think it, it really speaks some important things into our lives. And so we spent some time in this series really talking about the, the theology of the friends, uh, but we haven't talked a lot about the theology of Job himself. And where's Job coming from? And um, it may come as a surprise to, to learn that Job is actually working from uh, the similar assumption or the same assumption that his friends are. Uh, Job is operating in the world as though he believe, in believing that God's justice is people getting what they deserve. That if you are good and wise, you will be successful and rewarded. If you are evil, then you will suffer disaster. Now, while the assumption, while that assumption and that view of the world leads Job's friends to accuse Job of sins that he has not committed, Job maintains his innocence. And so believing that kind of good people get good things, bad people get bad things, and here I'm innocent... Job says, this cannot be divine punishment because I'm innocent. And he's done nothing to deserve it. And so on these two points, Job is correct. He is innocent, and this, these, these, the suffering that he experiences is not God's d- divine punishment upon his life. On these two points, he is right. But ultimately what we find is that Job, in his suffering, des- decides to qu- he, he questions whether God is just and whether God is capable of ruling the world, okay? That in the moments where, where Job is kind of, we remember we talked about Job is ping-ponging back and forth between moments of great faith to moments of doubt. In his moments of doubt, he essentially is saying, God, you must not be just. You, th- this whole system of good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff cannot be the case. You must not be just because here I am, an innocent man who is suffering. And that leans ultimately to Job saying, you then must not be capable of actually running this place. <laughs> okay? Remember, God can handle our honesty. And throughout some of his replies and his speeches and his laments, he'll say things like, uh, in chapter 27, verse 2, he'll say, why has God denied me justice and made my life bitter? Because remember, in his eyes, justice would be Nothing but success, because I'm an innocent man. So why has God denied that of, of me in my life? He also says, he, that is referring to God, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. <laughs> Which is essentially saying God just kind of runs amok and does whatever he wants. In the face of suffering, Job experiences what we have now come to call, maybe you've heard this term, but in the face of suffering, Job experiences faith deconstruction. Have you heard this? Uh, have you heard this term maybe? You've listened to a few podcasts maybe that use this term of deconstruction. Faith deconstruction is the process of questioning everything you thought you knew about faith and the nature of God. In a nutshell, faith deconstruction is questioning everything you thought you knew about faith and the nature or character of who God is. Job knows he is innocent, knows he is blameless, and yet he is suffering, and that causes him to question the very nature and character of God. So Job was going through faith deconstruction before it was cool, and people will start a podcast about it, <laughs> right? <laughs> 
And this is why, as you read Job's responses to his friends, you notice that he has these moments of tremendous faith, these, and yet these moments of bitter lament, these complaints against God, and questions the character and the capability of God. And it all comes to a crescendo in chapter 31, 35, where he says this, Look, I sign my name on my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. He is holding on to his innocence. And he says, I'm ready to sign my name on my defense. And so let the Almighty answer me. Now what's interesting as you read Job, and it can be difficult to read, right? Uh, It can be difficult to just kind of read right all the way through because you get lost in the Hebrew poetry of verses, of chapters three through 38. It's very easy to kind of get lost in the structure of the whole thing. Uh, So it can be difficult to read. But what we'll find out is the only thing that we've heard directly from God so far in all of the book of Job is his declaration that Job is blameless in chapter 2. In the conversations between God and the accuser, Hasatan, the Satan, the only thing, we have that interaction, but what we hear in that is Job is blameless. And then for 36 chapters, God remains silent and says nothing. Now remember last week we talked about, but we, don't all, we also don't see the accuser anywhere. So does the accuser leave the story? No, we, distort, we decided that the accuser, the spirit of the accuser goes into the friends who are blaming the innocent man, right? But what happens to God? Where is God in all of this? Have you ever said that in the midst of your suffering? Where is God? For 36 chapters, God remains silent. Job has posed questions. He has complained against God. He has demanded answers for his suffering. And even his own friend, his friends who are blaming him and, and throwing spears at Job are essentially are also saying at different points, you know, if God would weigh in on this, he would be on our side. And so you have kind of like the three friends represent the wisdom of the ages, right? It's like all the wisdom that humanity can muster is represented in the friends. And Job is calling out and demanding an answer from the Almighty, why am I suffering? The friends are providing all kinds of answers and explanations and saying, you know what, if God could weigh in on this or if he would weigh in on this, he would be on our side. And yet God remains silent. until now, until chapter 38. And that's what I want to read for us, just portions of 38. I want to read the first 12 verses and then skip to 31 through 36. And I want us to know, I want us to like just put ourselves in this position if, we're, if we've experienced intense suffering, if you have wondered where God is at. And this is finally God weighing in. Job chapter 38, beginning with verse one, says this. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And he said, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. (laughs) This isn't quite how we expected God to show up in the story, right? I've got some questions and you better be ready to answer them. And it turns out 
that God does not just have a handful of questions. He actually has hundreds of questions. Here's a sample of some of them. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its, corner, uh, who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside of its boundaries as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, and I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear or caused the dawn to rise in the east? Okay, gives you a little flavor. Skip down to verse 31. Verse 31 says, can you direct the movements of the stars, binding the clusters of Pleiades or losing the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with their cubs across the heavens? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives uh, intuition to the mind and uh, to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Question after question after question. We could go on reading to the end of 38 with similar questioning like this. We could go on reading to the end of chapter 39 with questioning like this. And then finally, in in chapter 40, there's a break. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? (laughs) You are God's critics, but you do not have the answers. Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing, for how could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand, for I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. So then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Yes, you're reading that right. That's uh, that's twice that the Lord says that. At the beginning of chapter 38, then at the beginning of chapter 40. Will you discredit my justice, condemn me just to prove you right? Are you as strong as God? Can you, thun- can you thunder with a voice like this? <laughs> oh, man. God goes on again for all of chapter 40, all of chapter 41. This isn't quite how we expected God to show up in the story, is it? just with this string of question after question after question. Four chapters in total of asking questions to which Job, if he were to answer, must either answer no or I don't know. What in the world is going on here? where God breaks his silence by basically slapping Job with a whole string of questions. This is not the way in which we anticipated God to show up in the story. 
In all of the questioning, though, I feel like it's really important to note something, especially after our conversation last week with the friends and how the friends blamed Job and were so critical and and, and so accusatory of Job. I think it's so important to note that in all of the questioning, God does not accuse Job of sin that would be cause for his suffering. In all of the questioning, in all of God's, in all of God's kind of, his speech of questions, he never says, you know what, your friends were right, and I have declared you guilty. He never blames Job, he, says, he never says, you know, Job, you got exactly what you've deserved. But what God does do, what God does do is he, question, he questions how much Job knows. He questions He calls out Job's limited perspective. He says, were you there when everything came into existence? Are you the reason there is something rather than nothing? God wants to drive home a point to simply say, Job, you don't know everything. And so chapters 38 and 39, you'll notice are questions about the intricate workings of creation. It is essentially God giving Job a virtual tour of the universe. (laughs) Where were you when the earth was called into existence? uh, When the stars were hung in the sky, do you command the winds? And then he goes on into like really detailed stuff. He says, do you know the grazing habits of mountain goats? (laughs) Are you aware of the feeding patterns of lions? I mean, like God goes into so much detail about creation. And the amount of detail is actually quite stunning. And and I suppose that the questions that God asks seem to be for the purpose of alerting Job to the beauties that are all around him. You see, you you can read this and this is, this is so much how we tend to put ourselves in the scripture, right? When I first read this, I, I read it with an accusatory tone and a shake of a finger. Were you there? Do you know this? Can you do that? And, and as I begin to kind of really think about this and, and study it and hear what other kind of theologians and the wisdom of the ages have begun to say, I, I recognize that that maybe God isn't so accusatory here. Remember, he's never accusing Job for saying, you deserve the suffering that you've experienced. But I wonder if if the, the, the tone of the questions is more of one that just says, if you would simply look around and see the intricacies and the delicacies and the detail of the world all around you, you would begin to see that this whole thing is filled with beauty. It's essentially saying that Job, from your vantage point of life, it only offers you a limited perspective. And the world is an intricate place. And isn't it true that when we suffer, we tend to just kind of get into our own world, we only see our own suffering, and and then everything turns a a shade of gray and black and doom, right? Isn't that true? And what God wants to do is simply say that in your suffering, your perspective has become limited, and so open your eyes and begin to look around and see the beauty of the world that is all around you. Job understandably has lost sight 
of the gift of life. And God in His grace and in His wisdom simply wants to point out that there is tremendous beauty to this whole thing. Because look at all the ways these things work together. Um, I just finished reading a book um, called The Book of Joy. It's uh, co-written by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And these two uh, world uh, religion leaders, uh, it's such a fascinating story because each of them has suffered tremendous, uh, tremendous pain in their lives. And, and yet, uh, when they get together, there is this childlike joy between the two of them. Uh, I mean this quite literally. These 70 and 80 year old men who are world religious leaders uh, get together and tickle each other. Like, 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 this is a true story. Like, they get together and they laugh and they giggle and they tickle each other and they poke fun at each other. And it is just, and you kind of recognize, like, what? <laughs> and so they're, they're, the whole book is just about them explaining how do they maintain this sense of, of lightness in the midst of all the heaviness that they carry, not just in their own lives, but for the faith communities which they lead, right? That there's this weight, this heaviness to all that they carry, and yet this lightness to their life. And one of the key points there that the book gets across is in the midst of suffering, we get tunnel vision and can only see our own suffering. And both the Archbishop and the Dalai Lama said that it's so helpful in the midst of our own suffering to recognize, number one, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one that is suffering. That there is, this, there is a universal nature to suffering. You remember in week one of, of our Job series, we said that the author intentionally puts this kind of without a timeline, without a particular geographic context, for the purpose of making this story universal that this is something that all of us can identify with to some degree or another. Maybe we haven't experienced the kind of loss that Job experiences, but we all know what it's like to suffer. And one of the key points was open our eyes to a broader perspective. Number one, to say that we're not alone in our suffering, but borrowing on the wisdom that from the book of Job and how God weighs in, it's also this sense in which if we open our eyes, we will also see there's beauty all around us. Well then, so that's like the first two chapters of questioning this and this and this and just kind of broadening the perspective. But then the second set of questions after chapter 40 verse 2 are also dealing with creation but in a unique way. Uh, Because God asks Job to consider two creatures, Bohemoth and Leviathan. (laughs) Now you cannot go and see these animals at the Denver Zoo. Okay, and so there's, there's like, where, what in the world are these things and what are they meant to represent? And, and while there's like a huge discussion about that, uh, suffice it to say that most folks believe that these are mythical creatures that the author employs to make a point, okay? And, and I'm tempted to just read these whole chapters to you, uh, but, I, but, but I won't, okay? Now some of you are like, I wouldn't put that past him, okay? Uh, but, but, but in the behemoth, it like describes... It describes the, the muscle structure of the behemoth and, and how his tendons are, are so strong and they're put together, right? And as, 
as God is telling Job about the behemoth, you can tell like God is so proud of the behemoth. Like, like you see that? I created that, you know? And then, and then you have this picture where the behemoth uh, sits under the shade of a tree beside a river. And this, this thing is so strong and so massive that even if the river were to flood, it would not be bothered. Like it literally says that. It finds shade under a tree by a river, and if the river floods, the behemoth is like, no biggie. I'm not even bothered, right? It's crazy. In other words, this, this animal cannot be caught off guard, and it cannot be tamed. And then you have the Leviathan. The Leviathan is also a, this massive creature, but described as a creature of the sea, a sea creature. Uh, it's like uh, seafood, right? And, and, and it says the Leviathan cannot be captured or tamed or put to work for any purpose. In other words, the Leviathan does what it wants, when it wants. And then in some of my favorite verses about the Leviathan, it says, can you make it a pet, like a bird? Or can you give it to your little girls to play with? <laughs> and as a dad of two girls, I'm like, nope, you cannot do that. Do not, do not be like, hey girls, go play with Leviathan. You know, like, this is something you don't do, right? And so it's like, God is almost so sarcastic with this. You can't turn this thing into a pet and you cannot tell your kids to play with this thing. And then it goes on to say, will merchants try to buy it and then sell it in their shops? Like, no, okay, those of you who are interested, that's chapter 41, verses five and six. When I was reading this, I, couldn't, I could not help but think of um, The Hobbit, and in The Hobbit, when, um, when Bilbo Baggins meets Smaug for the first time, he says, truly the tales and the songs fall utterly short of your enormity, O Smaug the Tremendous, right? And I, I was kind of reminded of that. Like, this is the sort of creature that is so dangerous and so big and yet has this kind of beauty to it, right? Kind of like the world. That what the author is doing with these creatures, these, these creatures that are so big and so dangerous and yet there is this beauty to them, this unending beauty of, of just how massive and tremendous they are. There's a sense in which the author is trying to say, the author through the voice of God is trying to say, the world is kind of like that. It contains unending beauty, but right now it is not set up to prevent suffering. The essential to the human relationship to God right now in this season and what the love of God requires is true freedom. Which means in a wild place like this, there will be suffering. Now of course we hold on to hope and we look forward to the day when this whole arrangement is renewed and, and reconciled and redeemed so that suffering will no longer be but right now as it's set up, this wild earth, right, is not set up to prevent suffering. I, lo I love that song, This Wild Earth, and some of you may feel meh about the style of the song but if you connect to the, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about the song but I love the song. Uh, and the reason I love it is because it confesses those two things. This earth is wild, and yet we pray for peace, and we long for peace. And the, the, the bridge is like, it's just this musical interpretation asking us to hold on. Be patient. Renewal is coming.
Again, like we may, I, I wanna be sure we understand this. We may be tempted to think that through this line of questioning, God is building a case that he can do whatever he wants, when he wants, because he's God. But let's consider that for a moment, especially what we know about the argument of the friends. That if you're suffering, it must be God. It must be God doling that out. It must be God causing that. If God were to come in and say to Job, with all this line of questioning, I'm God, so I can just do what I want when I want, you better get on board or get off. Wouldn't that be God making the same argument the friends have just made? See, God is not just trying to, to, to like pull the sovereignty card and say, ha, there, get a hold of it. God is simply trying to say, running the world is more nuanced and complex than you might think. That justice isn't as clear cut as good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. Touched on this again, but I, I want, I've touched on this, but I want to make it explicit. I think that what God is doing in this, with this line of questioning is two things. Number one, God is pointing out the complexity of the world. That with the complexity of the world and our own lives, justice is not quite so cut and dry. There is nuance to all the complexity of the world. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded uh, of an old movie uh, called Bruce Almighty. You guys ever seen that? Uh, you might remember the scene where uh, Bruce, who's been given, the, this is a like, hilarious movie, by the way. Uh, so Bruce, uh, this guy Bruce, he's a newscaster, he's just an everyday normal guy, uh, and he's visited and he's given the powers of God for a time. And he spends the first few days um, just kind of like using his God powers to enhance his own life and make his whole life easier and better and kind of only focusing on himself in which uh, the God character, played by Morgan Freeman, uh, visits, visits Bruce and says, hey, you know, Bruce, uh, you've only focused on yourself. Um, and so Bruce says, actually, what are all of these voices in my head? And, and the God character says, those are prayers. And he's like, oh, man, I'll never have time. And so, uh, so he says, so the God character says, Bruce, you better go around answering some prayers. And he figures out that the best way to do that is to set up an email program to receive prayers, uh, in, in which case he'll just email back and then that's how the, the prayer is answered. And he, for, the, for the first few times, he really considers the situation and then decides to, to make, a, make a judgment and answer the prayer. Uh, but this gets exhausting because more and more prayers keep coming in, right? And so finally he decides uh, to reply all uh, and just say yes. <laughs> yes to everyone's prayer, right? And, and the following scene is you have these people walking by saying, oh, I won the lottery, and oh, this is great, and all these things are, are going phenomenal, but, but eventually what happens is chaos breaks out, right? That if, if everybody just got everything they wanted all the time, then it would just, everything would run amok. And I think that points us to the reality that sometimes justice is a little more nuanced than just kind of getting what you deserve, Right? And so God is, in this line of questioning, trying to point out to Job that the world is a complex place. Justice isn't quite so cut and dry. 
that there's an intricate web of connectedness, that the sun must rise for the flowers to grow, the wind must blow to carry the seeds of the flowers for new life, and these flowers and grasses feed the deer, and on and on goes the cycle of connectedness and beauty. The other thing that I want to drive home, and this is really my main point, is that God is also alerting Job of what he has probably understandably lost sight of in the midst of his suffering, which is the gift of life. Um, God, I think, wants to say to us that sometimes life can become so difficult we forget that this whole thing is a gift. It's something to say, I have been included in this thing called life. I've been invited to the party. And it is something significant to be here and to take it all in. And it's easy to get tunnel vision from our suffering or from our busyness or from the mundaneness of life. But ultimately what I want to connect us to this morning is that this whole thing is a gift. The opportunity to love, the opportunity for friendship, for connection, for recreation, for enjoyment. And you take that all along with the heartbreak and the betrayal and the disappointment and the suffering. And we kind of take it all in, in this one wild life. On this one wild earth, right? And so... It strikes me this morning that when God weighs in... He does not weigh in with empty platitudes. He does not weigh in with all the answers. God weighs in with perspective to connect Job to the gift of life and the complexity of this thing we call the world. Amen? Well, I hope that we also will be connected to those things this morning through the work of the Spirit in our lives and as we gather around the Lord's table today. So let me say a word of prayer and then I'll lead us in a short liturgy to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the goodness of life. We recognize today that even in the moments when we suffer, when life is so hard and difficult, that we are in fact given opportunity for communion with others, communion with you, for friendship, for love, for recreation, for the good things of life. God, today we, may we be connected to these gifts of life, whatever they may be, and whatever our situation or our circumstance in life might be right now, maybe we're going through a season of suffering, maybe we're dealing with something really difficult, I pray, God, that in the midst of that, we wouldn't get tunnel vision, but that we would keep our eyes up to see the giftedness that is all around us. Lord, I know as, as well as anyone how difficult that can be, that when we suffer, life can feel so dark. But God, lift us up. and help us to see. And Lord, as we gather around the table today, may we see you more clearly. May we find 
hope as we look upon the cross and remember your self-sacrificial love, that you took our sin upon yourself and responded not with retaliation, not with blame or accusation, but with forgiveness. And now the world has changed forever. May we align ourselves, Lord, to this message, the good news of Jesus Christ. Be with us in these moments as we gather around your table. Meet us at the point of our need. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.